Okay, hands up who doesn't love a great magic show. I know I do, and I have done since I was a very young boy. Today's brilliant guest, Maximilian Somerset, is not your run-of-the-mill magician. He's an award-winning, multi-talented TV magician, musician, and unusualist. Max is one of the few privileged to be an honorary inner member of the prestigious Magic Circle in London, and he has performed for celebrities, royalty, barristers, and yes, road sweepers alike. Max has had his own primetime TV show on BBC One called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and a six-part primetime series for Sky One called Max Magic. In addition to his amazing magical skills, Max had the most unusual and eclectic upbringing and has had endured terrible personal loss from a young age. By joining together his masterful musical and magical talents, Max turned the negatives into positives and has a most uplifting and stoic outlook on life. To find out what an unusualist is, you will have to pay close attention as Max dives deep into his unique fresh approach and take on life, the universe and everything. Now that is magic. I'm Steve Lazarus. And this is your London Legacy. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy okay let's get on with the show well this morning folks finds uh, finds me in a place I've never been before deep in the heart of uh, Chelsea yeah deep in the heart of mystical magical posh Chelsea yes. Norm- you normally find me in the sort of the West End and East London but no today we're uh, we've going gone up market and in theory I'm told by my guest that we're not supposed to say where we are but are we going to say where we are Max Really? Should we, we breach we, protocol? We mustn't tell them that we're at the Chelsea Arts Club. We won't mention the we fact won't that we're at the Chelsea Arts, the Chelsea Arts, Arts the Club. Chelsea Arts. I think I mentioned the Chelsea Arts did Club you? once, but I think I got away with you it. You did, did. So scrub that. <laughs> we'll edit that. No, we won't. We won't. Let me introduce Max Somerset, which is his, I think it's your abbreviated given name from birth, because you've got a much, much longer name. Yes, and it's, fan- it's, it's basically on my passport, it says PTO. PTO, Yeah. because you've got so many. Names. We'll come on to that in your your past and your history and your family genealogy, because it is quite amazing. But Max Somerset, you might recognise him from TV shows. Well, he's been on Sky, BBC, BBC, Charlton 4, Charlton, all manner of places. Plus, of course, world-renowned magician. All over the world, yes. Antigua and various various places around the world. It's always nice to get a job in Antigua once a year. Yeah. Well, you you might be talking to our one Antiguan listener, because we have listeners all around the world. You'll always find me there on the 3rd of March. (laughs) If you happen to be in English Harbour, that's where I'll be. (laughs) What's going on on the 3rd of March, then? It's funny, when I... Just sipping some coffee. I, I used to do a series called Max Magic on Sky One, and we did... I, I'm launching straight in here. That's good. And, and we did this funny thing called Max Max's Naked Big Band Prediction, because okay. I'm a magician. Uh-huh. Uh, we haven't told the listeners that yet. No, we? Well, I thought I had, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. World-renowned but, magician. Kind of, <laughs> yes. So, um, and we did this idea called Max's Naked Big Band Prediction, because I'm also a pianist. I play, the, well, so I've often heard people say. And I did this prediction where I play the piano, and someone comes in and I say, right, choose a doll, choose... 
choose the number of players, choose the song. And they do all this choosing by just flicking through a book and choosing a song title and choosing a costume for our band to wear and choosing the number of players. And then I say, well, a number of them, unfortunately, are naked because we, de- we didn't have enough costumes to go around. So then they choose in, in a bag of balls with numbers on them, one to ten, and they take out the number. So I don't see how many are naked. I don't see how many band members there are. I don't see what song's been chosen or any of the, the above. And at the end of it all, I get her to turn around, the, 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 the spectator turns around, she doesn't see the stage, the curtains open and there are my band on stage and all of the sensitive parts of the body are, of course, covered by musical instruments. Of course. So there's no, there's no problem there. And then a number of them are dressed in tutus. You see, uh-huh. so she pulls out the doll from the bag, and it's a tutu. It's a doll. It's a doll in a tutu, and then we launch into a song. I think we did. You are my sunshine. You can see it if you go Max's Naked Big Band Prediction uh-huh. online on on YouTube. And then she turns around, and then of course there they are in tutus, and a number of them naked, and she's got the right number. So the only problem is, she said that there were six or seven members of the band, and there are only. She said there were six members of the band. I think there are only five members on stage. And then, of course, I realise I'm the sixth member. And with that, I do a quick change. And now I'm in a tutu. And we play the piano. And we and we sing out. One of those people on the stage was a trombone player by the name of Chris Webster. Uh-huh. He's a wonderful man. And he, and he currently tours with Incognito, the band. And at the time, you know, I called him in. He was at the Royal Academy. He was an old friend of mine. I said, would you come and do this thing? There's not much money in it. I said, but can you bring... There was Adam Mays on drums and he used to go out with a girl who was a violinist from Escala, the the, the, the violin. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And and, and there were a couple of other ones as well. And I got them all in for this wonderful trick. And it just so happened that after I'd been filming that... that This is going somewhere, by the way, Steve. We just so happy. Shaggy dog story. Yeah. But after we'd been filming that, he went back to the Royal Academy and he was walking past a corridor and there was a woman at the Royal Academy called Lydia Kern that came from one of the Caribbean islands. And she happened to be on the phone to a guy called Angelo Caputo, who lives in Antigua and has a bar called Abracadabra. <laughs> and she was on the phone at the time and he was asking her the question, I need a magician because we've got the Abracadabra anniversary coming up. And Chris Webster, who'd just done my Naked Big Band prediction, was walking past the office and he overheard this. And he walked in, he said, Lydia, he said, I just overheard you were on a, you're having a conversation with this chap. I don't know who it was, but you were asking for a magician. He said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, I know just the guy. I've just been working with him just the other day. We did a show together. We were in, in, in Porchester Hall, in Porchester Square, doing this shoot for a TV show. Would you like me to put you in touch? So it was an utterly tenuous link. And for the last 13 years now, perhaps even, I'm trying to think, of, I started doing it in 2004, four, five, six, seven, yeah, 15 years. I've been flown out every year to Antigua to do this job. That's just ridiculous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we, we were talking about sort of synchronicity, weren't we, before we actually went live on, uh, on the show. And I, we walked in here, you introduced me, you showed me around the Chelsea Art. You showed me around the Chelsea Arts Club. There were some guys wandering around, and I overheard this conversation. This chap mentioning Janine Saba. Well, Janine Saba is the editor of the uh, Covent Gardener, a wonderful magazine which she she edits and publishes. And this guy talking about it is the does all the artwork. Who I've been trying to get on the show for a long time. And had we not been at the Chelsea. Arch. Yes, 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 yes. It's a place where where um, all electronic devices are banned. By the way, Steve, just to let you. <laughs> so know. we couldn't actually be we in the worst. In we couldn't be in the worst place. But we have turned our phones onto Thankfully, silent. Or yes, we're not using any electronic devices or, at all today. Or airport no. mode, apart yes. from the electronic devices in front of us. Mm. So Max Somerset, 
you know, when I was doing my research on you late into the night last night, and you, you, you can see I, I do my research. I can I, see. I, I can't I, believe I print I'm, stuff I'm, off the I'm internet. Flattered. I'm I flattered. highlight things I mean, with a yellow you know. marker, and I'd circle things, and I, I mean, watch, you know. you know, I watch shows and listen to podcasts. So I, I do do research. I honestly didn't know where to start in the conversation with you, but knowing you from, you know, remotely, you've dived, you've dived straight in, which, which is fantastic. So give, I mean, you are first and foremost a renowned magician. But you don't call yourself a magician. You, you, you call yourself not an illusionist. You call yourself something else, don't I call you? myself an unusualist. What's an unusualist? The reason I call myself an unusualist is because I'm not so interested in just magic per se. I want, I want magic to be a much bigger expression of, of something else. For example, a, a lot of magicians will look for card tricks or they'll they'll look for the next best thing that the dealers are selling or whatever. My inspiration for any form of entertainment has to be bigger and wider than the actual field itself. And what I'm interested in is seeing the unusual in the world around me and exploring what is what we all take for granted. And I see myself very much as a signpost pointing out to the bleeding obvious that we all take for granted mm. the fact that that, that 13.8 billion years ago you know according to the should i say the classic inflationary cosmological model of the big bang the whole universe began as all matter energy space and time in something smaller than than a pinhead now that's magic you yeah. know everything you me this cup you know these uh, this 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 pot this everything around us all began as light and you know, and then light beams became alive and then light beams ended up doing talk shows. Uh-huh. That's scientific magic, I guess. That's something which is incredible. Yeah, um, whatever it is. I mean, you know, whether you label it science or whether you, whatever it is, you know, you can put different labels. For me, there's no distinction, you see. For me, it's all the same. Mm. For me, it's all, we take for granted. I mean, I did a talk at the Magic Circle once called What the Hell's Wrong with Reality and What Are You Doing About It? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and how, how we had it as magicians, I think a lot of magicians take for granted that the fact what we're doing, for example, when we make a, let's imagine we're, we're making a ball float yeah, or we're making a person float with a hoop. We put a hoop around yes. them. Now, if we were on the moon, that wouldn't be so impressive. Uh huh. You know, yeah. I mean, we're just. You know, actually, what would be more impressive is if they walked without a spacesuit, yes. for example. So magic is essentially as far as as far as. I understand it. It's essentially what we're not used to. Or things we don't understand. Yeah, things things that we are not common in our experience. So we're not used to seeing things float. But I remember I did I did a floating trick for someone who was part of the European Space Agency, Tomar Pesquet, because I was doing a show. I was interviewing all these people for a night of ideas for the French Institute. And I showed them this floating trick. And he said, yeah, well, you know, what I do, where, where I work for a living, I see that kind of thing all the time. So... I ask myself the question, why is it that magicians want to bend reality? Why, why do we want to, to change? Uh, you know, why, why are we trying to constantly change what's real? What the hell's wrong with reality as it is? It's amazing as it is. Why do we need to add something else? Why do we need to make something float when it doesn't float? Why do we need to? What's wrong with the human psyche that says, I'm sorry, this is not enough. We need to be doing something else to create wonder and awe. Surely there's enough wonder and awe in the universe around us as it is. And I believe that there is. And I believe as an unusualist, what we're doing is we're drawing on reality and saying, don't take reality for granted. And it reminds me of that story of uh, David Foster Wallace. This is water. I don't know if you know the story. There's I'm a not fish. With it. There's a fish um, swimming one way 
in, in, a, in, a, in a fish tank and there's a fish swimming the other way. And then the fish looks at the other fish. He says, uh, morning. He says, are you enjoying the water? And the other fish looks back at him and says, water? What the hell's water? Yeah, yeah perfect. You know, because we take for granted the fact that here we are, conscious beings in the in a matter-energy space-time universe, enjoying all of this. What the hell's the universe doing being conscious in the first place? So why are people, yeah, but so why are people not happy with their present existence then? Because obviously magic is a, for, is a form of entertainment, a, a wonderful form of entertainment, which te takes people out of their present, what they might perceive as monotonous existence. Mm. But in your words, there is so much magic, natural magic that is out there today, mm. which we just take for granted. Mm. Why is it that people are, this has nothing to do with magic, I guess, this is more philosophy and morality, I don't know, and everything else. Why are people well, taking to, to drugs and booze yeah. and their phone and Twitter to constantly get that sort of dopamine hit? You know, why are they doing that when we'll, the life, the world around us is so magical itself? I think the first thing we have to do is stop taking reality for granted. And, and I know this is a funny starting point for us today, but you did ask why I call myself an unusualist. Because, you know, when I do a trick for someone, there's a little brief moment where the whole world is just shattered when you do something impo seemingly impossible for them. And you've only just, you've, what you've actually done is, is shown them literally a lateral thinking puzzle essentially. They haven't been able to work out. And I've fooled clever people and stupid people. And some people might think, oh, it's only stupid people that get fooled by magic. No, it's everybody that gets fooled by magic. Thank God for that. I've, I've, fooled, I've fooled doctors and nurses once I stopped my pulse for a doctor and the doctor said you should be dead. You yeah. know? But that's because they, they're trained in a certain way to think in a certain way. Whatever our field of study is, we're trained in a certain way to think in certain ways. And as magicians, you know, and people in this field, we tend to think laterally about things. So, you know, you show them a lateral thinking puzzle and now their world is blown to pieces and just there's that brief moment when there's that childlike awe and wonder comes back over them again and you see them reconnecting with almost that mo those, those moments in childhood when the whole world was a wonderful place before somebody came and, 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 and cynicism sat upon their shoulders and then they thought, well, we've got to find some way out of this. And, and I think that, that a lot of people are trying to escape from reality and they're trying to escape from it because they've lost faith in how wonderful it is and actually what a wonderful place it is. It takes a lot of readjusting of the, of the cognitive faculties to try to reconnect and remember just how amazing reality is, how amazing it is that just this moment, just being able to talk yeah. to somebody. And, and, and at, at the moment, I'm very blessed. I'm not feeling any pain in my body. You know, I have fresh air to breathe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in, at the top of Kilimanjaro struggling for oxygen. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I, so many things we take for granted. Yeah. And it's learning not to take our reality for granted and to be grateful for what we have. Mm. And I suppose this is why things like mindfulness are so prevalent today or so become so popular it's an opportunity for people to stop and be aware of their surroundings and, and marvel at them mm. because they are they are magical. Yeah, you know? and I think Eckhart Tolle talks about trying to be in the present and remember that it doesn't really get any better than this in as much as I know that seems like a very... can can seem like a cynical thing to say, but it's not. It's about, you know, learning to love the moment and enjoy the moment with our surroundings and with our problems and with our issues. And, and there's always going to be ups and there are always going to be downs. And there are times when we're going to feel happy and there are times when we're going to feel sad. But happiness and sadness is, is, is not the most important thing. You know, the most important thing is learning contentment in our situation and learning to, to, to be able to, I think, in, in our situations, be able to find ways of connecting with our world and, and trying to be 
a person who who builds virtue within themselves because i think you know no one ever said when they when they pass as they were passing away oh i wish i'd spent an extra hour in the office or i wish i'd spent an extra or yeah. i wish i wish i'd made another million yeah. you know these are not actually important in themselves and you know i'm not saying that earning isn't important we all need we all need to live to etc cetera, etc cetera. but more important than that i think are our virtues i think love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self control learning to cultivate character have you studied Stoicism by any chance? Well, uh, no, I've never been there. <laughs> it's fantastic. You just go on the Northern Line. Yeah. It's, well, you sound like a born, you know, born Stoic to me, but that's, uh, I can recommend some fantastic reading material oh, if you on that. If you want. You. But we really have dived we right into the deep. Right so into I call the myself <laughs> an unusualist because for me, I, I get my inspiration from everything, from music, from theatre, from life, from philosophy. And I want to bring all of that into my magic. And my magic, consequentially, usually has some kind of logic to it. And I, I see myself in as a magician like this. I'm in this hermetic world of its own reality. And I'm bringing this and I'm saying, let's explore it together. You see, some magicians, if you watch them, they're like, oh, look at me. I'm better than you. Look what I can do. Whereas I don't like that as a philosophy in magic. My philosophy in magic is... Let's explore this wonderful world together. Let's let's come in together rather than let me show you a trick. Let me do the imp impossible for you. I prefer it when the magic happens in the hands of the person I'm performing for. Much more fun. And then you can say to them, well, how did you do that? And they look back at me and say, I don't know how I did that. You know, and I just think that that's, it's much less confrontational, number one. Number two, it's much more empowering for the, the spectator. I and mean, one of the things you see me do online is I do a trick where I've got this megaphone but you may have seen it and i go up to people and i say now i don't know um, whether you're wearing any underwear today but um if you happen to be wearing any underwear i have have you ever heard of these rays called sawney rays and they go no, no. oh yes well they can translate sound they can translate color into sound see so in my world you see there are there are parameters in my universe seemingly that that work a certain way and i can now i'm going to speak to your underwear with a megaphone and so I speak to their underwear with a megaphone. I say, what color are you? And then I listen to the color of the underwear. I, I, I do recall having watched some of these. Yeah. on. Uh, yeah. And I listen to the underwear and then I tell them what color underwear they're wearing. Uh -huh. Now, this t to me is a wonderful thing because it has its own weird internal logic, you see. And, it, and it's about, again, reminding people of the weirdness of reality, that everything has a, a logic of sorts. And there might be 10 to the power of, you know, 800 universes or whatever there are out there with their own di different sets of parameters. We don't know. Cosmologists have no idea. But I like the idea that, that as an unusualist, I bring that concept to the table. Well, is the long it, answer. Is the long answer. And as I say, we've dived right in at the deep end from, from the off. But I, I think let's put this in a bit of context. I think we need to find out a little bit about your upbringing perhaps and how you got into magic and what was the first sort of what was the first thing that led you to fall in love with the art i loved it i when i was a child i i was about five years old and i was living in devon at the time i, I was born in hammersmith but was living in devon bampton in devon and i, I watched on tv paul daniels i don't know if you did we all oh, did absolutely and loved the paul daniels say yes show. paul <laughs> <laughs> now then, now then. And, uh, and he took these four coins and he pushed coins through the table so i was five and i asked my mum for some coins and i tried to push them through the table and it didn't work so i ended up in tears and i couldn't work out why he could push them through the table and i couldn't 
And it seemed very unfair that the universe would allow him to push coins through the table. But me, because I didn't realize at the time, you know, that there were rules of, of physics and that, the, and that generally speaking, they, even though every atom is 99.99999% vacuous space, we learn later on, it doesn't feel like that, does it? Because there are all sorts of ethereal laws holding it all together. I didn't know that. Well, at the time, at the time, I thought coins could just drop through a table and it didn't work. So I was very upset about that. Then my mum bought me a magic kit, which was devastating for me because what I thought was going to be real magic turned out not to be real magic at all. And sorry to upset any listeners who are listening in. But, you know, I often get asked the question, you know, people say to me, oh, you know, oh, that's not magic. That's a trick. You know, you're not doing real magic. You know, yeah, that's a trick. I don't believe in real magic. They say to me, I say, well, I'm glad you don't believe in real magic. I stopped believing in real magic when I was five. Yeah, so it's like Santa Claus, you know, he doesn't, doesn't, mm. doesn't really exist. No, he doesn't. And, and there's really no such thing as real magic. No, I mean, no, exactly. do, do you remember what the tricks were in your little first party bag of tricks? There, there were these, there, there were some thimble things which I couldn't fit uh -huh. on because my fingers were too small and there were some card tricks and yeah. various other things. But what I learned early on was you had to do something else to make the thing look like it was the crazy thing that it was. There was a little, there was something else going on that made the coins looked like they were going through. The so they weren't really going through the table. So uh, as a young man early on, I learned to be, I learned to be very good at deceiving, mm -hmm. you know, and I always say to people, you know, what, when they say to me, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I lie and deceive professionally for a living. I'm the most honest man you'll ever meet. Cause I tell you, I'm going to pull the wool over your eyes and I do it. And you do it and you do it very well. So from the age of five, did you feel at that stage that was something you wanted? It was way too early in your sort of upbringing to, to I know. kind of knew at that age even that I wanted to be a magician at the age of five. I knew I wanted to do this. I didn't know why. In Devon growing up, there were no magic shops and there was nobody to encourage. I used to just watch the Paul Daniels magic show religiously on a Saturday night, then try and make the tricks out of cardboard, try and make them out of... And I didn't know how the tricks were done. I didn't know the principles of magic at all. You know, and then one day... My adopted mother took me to Tiverton to a bookshop and we got they she got me this book called Harry Barron Magic for Beginners. And that was where I began to learn some of the principles and I devoured this book, you see. But I was a bit older than five then, obviously. But I just started devouring this book and, and, and as it was always something I wanted to do. Mm. And it was always something I wanted to be. But you know, my mother said to me at the time, you know, well, magicians don't make any money. So they said you need to do something more practical. So they bought me an organ. And so I learned to play the organ instead. Very practical. <laughs> Very practical. And thinking you can make money out of playing the organ. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at funerals, I mean, everyone needs a funeral, don't they? <laughs> With magic. Do you do, have you ever performed magic at a funeral? I have. Oh, my God. I have performed magic. At, <laughs> it, was a na it was a naturalist funeral. They weren't buried in a coffin. They were taken to the woods. This was somewhere in, in Wiltshire. And they had this, uh, this, this old boy had passed away and they wrapped him up themselves and embalmed him themselves, took him to the, I don't know who dug the hole, but they just, they just put him in, they, they, it, was a, it was a very expensive affair. I don't know how they did it, but they did it all themselves as a family. Yeah. And, and it was the most amazing thing. And they said he loved magic. And so they got me down and I was performing for the funeral. What, you mean going around doing yeah, close-up magic? Yeah, wandering around doing close-up magic. Not actually at the graveside presumably Not at the grave you know side, no. the, the wake afterwards or something no like i mean that. i didn't do the amazing resurrecting from the dead lazarus trick <laughs> well that's me you know, i'm yeah. lazarus <laughs> yeah, no, I, didn't, I didn't do that one but I, I i did wander around with deck of cards and and a few various bits and, and how did that go down really did, loved did you it. cheer them up yeah yeah you know, oh like, harry would have loved this yeah 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 i mean you know actually you know you, you'd be surprised that uh, magic and funerals go together, especially for magicians. When a magician passes away, we have what we call the breaking of the wand ceremony, uh, where a member of the magic circle will stand over the coffin and break a magic wand. 
Oh, when what, what, what does that symbolise? That it his, symbolizes his, that his powers of it's, it symbolises that there was a life of magic and and that life of magic now that wand is no longer to be used by anyone else and that wand that wand belonged to that magician and and the powers go with them, you know, down to the grave, so to speak. Yeah, you know? very very so, symbolic, very nice. Yeah. yeah. So what was your first live performance? Did you perform at school, sort of? Because I think I read somewhere that you actually you used it at school to sort of avoid kids picking on you. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I was bullied a lot at school. Why was that? Well, I was probably probably a bit of an annoying child, I should think. <laughs> in, what, you know. in what sense? Well, <laughs> probably talk too much for a start. Uh-huh. No, and, surely not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I think I was eccentric and I had a lot of energy. Uh-huh. Probably was, I was... Die, well, they, in those days, they called us hyperactive. Oh, now ADHD. they would say ADHD. Yeah, you know, I know all about that. That'll all change again in the future. Yeah. They'll, get, they'll come up with a new new moniker for it. But at the time, that was what I was diagnosed as, hyperactive. And I used to have to take these evening primrose oil pills and things. Uh-huh. And I think when you're a little bit different, I think people find it very easy to pick on different kids. Yes. And I was one of those kids. I wasn't particularly, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, uh, strong. I wasn't. I wasn't particularly menacing. I was just one of these kind of weedy kids wandering around the playground, you know, just just a little bit, probably a little eccentric with, with a few tricks in my pocket. And what I would find was if I could show them a trick and wow them and, and make them impressed, all of a sudden their respect for me would go up a little mm. bit, just a little bit, you know, and... I could stay them as long as I had new tricks in my pocket occasionally to show them. You know, as long as the tricks worked, you know, I could garner some kind of respect. So that's that's how I dealt with my bullies back in my in my formative years. Mm. You know? And I, I I had some terrible oh it was awful um, some terrible bullying at the time. And there were times when I just didn't want to go into school. But now it's funny enough the the guy I won't name him bless him but the guy who was then a bully he's now a, a big martial arts expert and martial arts teacher right. so I'm glad to hear he's channeled his energy in a positive way that yeah. really makes me in happy. a more disciplined form yeah. of the uh, the art of yeah. bullying yeah Let's take a very quick break just to remind you if you love the show and would like to get involved grab some cool stuff get shout outs on the show have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So we were saying that, do you remember the first sort of formal stand-up show you, you presented for, you know, either for financial gain or just for the hell of it? When I was... When I was a kid, my next door neighbor had a shed and I was, there was a guy who'd come over from Maryland in, in, in America and he became a friend of mine. His name was Jonathan Keyes. I don't know if he's still out there or what he's doing now. I haven't seen him in years, but um, he and I used to put on small magic shows and invite some of the locality, you know, and some of the tricks worked and some of the tricks didn't, you know, but um, I often think of those times and remember that you have to fail a lot to be able to succeed. And, and I, and I just used to find that, that people were very kind and generally speaking, not disparaging of the fact that the shows are a bit, and they encouraged us to keep going and we kept going, but then things changed because then my parents bought me this organ. So things changed and, and magic had to go on a back burner because they bought me this organ and I had organ lessons in Exeter with a guy called John Brett who was who worked for Yamaha and so I learned to play it was in, in those days in the 80s they had these electronic organs which had all manner of sounds in them string sounds and and and, 
and piano sounds and 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 orchestral sounds and trumpet sounds and 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 all sorts of things and rhythms and everything and i learned to play this organ so then rather than magic i had this detour of of going places pubs clubs playing the organ when i desperately what i desperately wanted to do was do magic you know but i, I had to put it on the back burner because i was essentially my adoptive parents didn't really respect anything to do with magic at all they didn't respect they they because in the west country i mean i'm sorry but just the work's not there but when they impressed with you when you did your own tricks on them no not no, really. they, no they didn't really oh. didn't re for them it was for them it was just an, an idle pastime yeah you know but they did they were very proud of my organ playing mm -hmm. and they and my my adopted dad used to make tape recordings of my organ playing yes. you know and then he would give the tape recordings because he was a milkman and on his milk round he would literally put the tape recordings with the milk bottles to some of his friends and the people yeah he would put the tape recordings. he was oh, very lovely. proud of me as an organist as, as an organist and and it was funny because organ playing would eventually then take me to trinity college of music where i where i did a bachelor's on the organ and a master's on the organ and then i left trinity college of music and then of course i became a magician <laughs> <laughs> well that's quite right and now you obviously blend the two together yeah. with, with your performances i blend the two together i i, 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 I you know one of the things i do is joanna the psychic piano i yes i loved that i did i did see that when you throw the dice out into the audience yeah, go on. You you explain. Yeah, that, well, one of the you know, and I think it's fun, as I say, to combine disciplines. Yeah. And um, and one of the things is the idea that you've got a dice and you throw the dice in the audience and then you've got a big. It's a fluffy dice and you throw a, a big red bucket in the audience and then they put the dice in the bucket. They stand up and you give them some music to shake the dice. So they they look at the, the the number on the top of the dice in the bucket. They don't show anybody else. They only just peek in. They remember the number. And then you get them to stretch out their hand and wiggle their fingers toward the piano and you tell them that Joanna the piano is going to translate that number into a song. So for example, let's say they got a number on the top of the piano. So now you say Joanna the psychic piano sending the thoughts up through my feet up through the pedals and out through my fingers and then you start playing you know da -dum, da -da -da -dum, dum -da -dum, da -da -dum, four he's a jolly good fellow it wasn't the two was it no oh what was the number four? Oh, funny that oh it's, and you do it two or three times you know and it's very fun another one i do is where i get someone i did this on bgt but they never aired it where i got alicia dixon to, to think of any song. She thinks of a song. She came up, I'm blindfolded. She puts her hand on my head and then I play the song that she's thinking of on the piano, blindfolded, you know, so she sends a thought to me. And so things like that, which interest me because they're, they're cross-discipline and they, they make use of different skills and, and, and some of the different talents from over the years that I've been able to cultivate. Did you say you were on Britain's Got Talent as, a, con did, as a contestant? Well, I did. They asked, they, what happened was it was a funny thing. I got a phone call from one of the one of the producers and they said, look, we, we've seen your stuff. We'd love to have you on. And now I thought to myself, do I do this? This could be really bad. They've been bad to magicians in the past. Mm. Sometimes they can they can cut you. They do three cuts of you, a good cut, a bad cut and an indifferent cut. Right. They can use anything, you know, and they have ways of editing you in any way they want. So it's a health hazard to go on those kind of shows. But they said, look, you, you know, we'd love to have you on, but we'd, we'll take you straight through into the whatever quarterfinals whatever it was we can put you straight on there and then you don't have to go through all the other processes yeah. you know what do you need so then i sat down with a friend of mine called paul rothman who i often who actually was the director on that show that you saw signature tricks because yeah. i think it's important to to really craft these things properly and i sat down with paul and i said look would you help me with this and, and paul now lives in la he's a great director 
and uh, got a wonderful entertainment mind, and also a member of the Magic Circle as well. And you'll often find him at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles now. But um, I think he's doing a, a show there uh, currently, a little, a little something. I'm not sure when it is, but it's recently. And he said to me, let's sit down and talk through the ideas. So we sat down, and we tried to thrash out what we could do. He got three minutes to try and do something on BGT, something that would wow the judges and something something that was interesting that would show all these different skills and so on and so on and so on. So we came up with the idea of, of we do something with the psychic piano routine, but we weren't sure exactly what. And um, we said, what about if we have a whole load of envelopes and then one of the judges chooses one of the envelopes, the piano comes on stage, the piano's covered over with a, with a black cloth so nobody can see it. And you say, you know, I have my psychic friend with me. You don't tell them who that is. Then he chooses one of the colored envelopes. There's pink, yellow, green, white, red, purple, you know, yellow, etc. Different ones. So he points to one of the colors. He chooses one of the colors. And then you say, what color have you chosen? He's chosen yellow. And you say, it's interesting that you've chosen yellow because Joanna, the psychic piano is. And you whip away the cloth and it was a yellow piano. Brilliant. So yeah. we'd, we'd had it, you know, so it was painted yellow. And then... So the envelopes there, the other envelopes are eliminated. And then we sat for a day thrashing out how we would do this trick where one of them would choose a song and I would play the song. And it was the question of, well, how do we end it? You know, because, yeah, okay, so I'm blindfolded. We, we play the song. How do we end it? And we came up with the idea that eventually the envelope that they chose, all the other envelopes would be ripped open. There's nothing there. The last envelope, the one that he's chosen, is opened up, and inside is a photograph of the songwriter or the or the of or the well-known singer of that song. So in in this case, it was Piano Man that she chose from the book. Right. He opens up the envelope, and inside is a picture of Billy Joel. I was going to say, don't tell me Billy Joel walked on. No, it didn't walk on. No. We didn't have that kind of budget. That would have been the finals. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what we came up with. And it took us, you know, with all good ideas, you know, what looks good in magic, what seems to be fairly spontaneous. There's a lot of thinking goes into sure. these things because all magic tricks have to be narrative. And narrative requires thinking like any book, like any story. You have to think... You know, how do we end the story? How do we get a nice, satisfying, rounded, you know, and I think stories are good if you can take them from the beginning and they end up where they started. So, you know, the idea is there, he chooses the envelope and you come back to the envelope and in the envelope is the singer who is well known for singing the song and the singer songwriter. So it's a lovely, it's got a lovely cyclical feel to it. But these things take time to, to get to simplicity can be very difficult sometimes. And so we came up with the idea. We did it. We went there. We filmed it and we got a, I got a standing ovation, all the judges, you know, standing and the audience standing and they never used it. You know, I'm not sure why they never used it. So but. I don't. Know. So were you there as a as a serious contestant with with the ambition of winning the thing and going on? I don't know. Was well, they, Palladium or whatever it is? They they said yeah. They said yeah. Well, would you come on and do it for us? Yeah. They invited me along and I and I and I ummed and about it. I said, are you going to present me in a bad light or are mm. you what are you going to do with mm. this? Because you, you, you by this time I don't know when this was a few years ago. Oh, this was about three years yeah, ago. Yeah, because you already had a very successful career with television performances. Yeah, and absolutely. Live acts all over the. Place. But I got the phone. But I got the phone call and I. You can see things in a certain way. You can see things in terms of, well, this is this going to further my career? Is this going to da, da, da? Or you can say, is this going to be an interesting experience? Yes. And I said to myself that this could be a fun experience and um, and an interesting experience, something I've never done before and something worth having a look at mm. and seeing what we do with it. And I know lots of professional magicians that go on that show. Lots of guys I know in the business that go on that show. But they're not going on there so much to further their careers, I think. They're just going on there because... I think the experience of doing it now, you know, 
BGT and, and, and AGT, lots of professionals go on those shows. And because in the old days, I think when it began, it was famous for your average Joe off the street going on. But now there's a lot of professionals going on the show because the value of those shows has ramped up a lot and people value the acts on those shows more than they ever did. I think now when you go on that show, you're more likely to be valued than not. And they're more, more now entertainment shows than they are competition shows. They're more Saturday night entertainment. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's why I, I said I'd, I'd be willing to do it because Simon's become a nicer guy, you know, and, and, and everyone's much nicer on that show. Very few people get beeped off anymore and it's more about just fun everyone wants everyone to win on that show now and everyone wants everyone to to have a nice entertainment experience and that's what these shows are all about now they're family feel shows so i said i'll do it no problem what a shame they didn't put any of it out at all they didn't use it they didn't use any of it and um I, i i have a thought that perhaps maybe um i don't know whether they'd seen some of my previous stuff because i know that some people have been on that show and then been slated later for having previously had a TV right, career. Right. So I wonder whether that may have been the Possibly. case and they may have thought, oh, you know. Let's, Possibly. You know. But we had a, I had a great time doing it and it was a wonderful experience. What do you like at stopping noise next door? Can you, ma- can you magic that away? No, but I know a couple of Italian guys <laughs> called, called, called Vinny and Erin who could come in for a good small sort price. And just, you know. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, folks. We, we, we seem to have found the only people drilling in the building right next door to us, but yeah, um, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll carry on ir- irrespective. Now, you mentioned in the build-up to that story your adoptive parents. Yes. Uh, and they encourage you in the, in the magical the world of magic they did yes yeah so just to tell us a bit about your your family because you've got a, a fascinating lineage shall we be you've got connections with royalty you've got connections with milkmen you got yeah, co- co- italians and all sorts and my magic career kind of reflects that i mean only you know a, a couple of weeks ago i was i was in in you know in the in, the, in cows in the, in the royal yacht squadron entertaining there, so you never know. From one one minute you are entertaining royalty, and the next minute you are entertaining road sweepers. You don't mm. know. But you know, the great thing about my life is, and the pe- the people I've met, and you know, whether you, whatever you are, whether you are royalty or you are road sweepers, magic's a great leveler because you know every jaw drops, and everyone has a great time being entertained, and that's my job, whatever they are, whoever they are, to make sure they're entertained and to entertain that one equally as well. And every show I do, I don't care who it is, who you are, what you've done or what you haven't done. You know, I'm there to make sure that I give, you know, a, a really professional, give my whole heart into making sure that that person walks away with a, having a sleepless night. You know, that's the most important <laughs> Keeping thing. Keeping them up. So yeah. do, do you think your upbringing, the fact you were adopted and you had quite a lot of, should we say, tragedy in terms of, you know, lots of your yeah. close family passed away yeah, when well, you were very young. Do you think that's led you to become more of a balanced person as you are? I, I think um, I've, I think having an unusual upbringing, which is what I've had, it, it, it was like a jigsaw puzzle that I couldn't put together. Back to what I said earlier, it, it forces you rather not to take things for granted. And it forces you to be grateful for what you've got. In my case, growing up in the West Country, you know, in this small house, we had a, we were in we were in this kind of councilly type thing in Bampton, and then my grandmother and grandfather lived in Wanham House, and they were my my biological grandparents lived in this big house in Wanham. So you know, one minute I'm in Bampton with these people who eat eat with their knife and fork one way, and then with another lot that eat with their knife and fork a different way, you know, and then I then they look at me funny because I'm eating 
with my knife and fork in the way that the people, my, my adopted mum and dad eat, and then my grandparents, are, are, you know, and I'm in this big house and I'm in this small house, but for me, it didn't bother me, for me, which, which, whichever way it was, it was all normal to me. Sure. It was all, it was all straightforward. And, um, and my, my, my adopted mother and father were very, very careful not to tell me about my biological mother because my biological mother um, had been not not well enough to look after mm -hmm. myself and my half brother and half sister of which which I didn't even know I had and they were very careful not to mention her and actually if anyone did say anything my grandmother always told me she was dead so um, you know so I was actively told that she didn't exist mm -hmm. anymore and 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 I, my biological father well he he had died in 1981 he was 37 when he died right he was 37 he died of a brain so a very young man who was very young and he don't want to complicate things suffice to say i was born in hammersmith in london my biological mother took me and my half brother and half sister to italy in our early years with my biological father then my mum was too ill to be able to look after us my biological father brought me back to london and then back to Devon to be with my grandparents. And my half-brother and half-sister were adopted in the island of Elba by Italian family. Crikey. And uh, my biological mother ended up in Switzerland in an institution of yeah. sorts. But she was a linguist. She speaks many languages. Mm -hmm. So she used to escape across all the various borders. And, she used to and they used to have to keep bringing her back. But it got to a point in my life where... I was shielded from all this family. And I was also, I knew nothing about my, my grandfather and his biological side of the family. You know, I knew a little bit about my grandmother's biological side because grandmother was still alive. Grandfather died in 1983. He was an old man and he'd, he'd married at the age of 44. So he was older when he had my father. He was an older man. But uh, grandfather was in the Navy and he always used to complain about having shrapnel and all this and this. And, and uh, he was... He was a bit of a, he, you should remember him in brogues and he used to wear a trilby and he used to doff his hat and he always used to take my mother to Tiverton and buy her violets and then they'd come back and so on. But grandfather died in, in 83, so I never knew anything about his side of the family. Then in 2008, I got a, an, an email from a guy from New Zealand who was my grandfather's sister's grandson, so a cousin. Okay. And he emailed, managed to find me. Uh, and I went to New Zealand and I met my 103-year-old great-aunt, my grandfather's sister. Wow. Yeah, and it was a wonderful time. She was very compass mentis. She was able to tell me all about, you know, that they come from Ireland, that they went to New Zealand, 1850s or whenever it was, uh -huh. and, gra and grandfather was born in 1890 or whenever it was, and, and then my grandfather came to London and she was able to fill in all the gaps and tell me all about the generations. So it How was wonderful. amazing. Yeah. Incredible. And then she died shortly after that. She died at 104. But I remember before she died, she was so pleased that I'd gone out there because she'd never met any of, she called him Edgar. We called him Edward. Never met any of his siblings or any of his, sure. you know. So for her, it was really, really special. You know, so that there was that. And then, of course, my adoptive parents passed away. And then I had to bury my adopted father, which was difficult. And my adopted mother died in 92. So I was very young, having to deal with a lot of loss. Yeah. And then eventually Auntie Dulcie died. She was the last one. And then I thought, who's going to bury me? I don't have any family left. I have no one. Yeah. It's a scary you know, thought, I would imagine. Yeah, it was awful. And that was when I got a private investigator. Well, it was a guy called Robert Barrett, who was a friend of mine, who's a genealogist. I was in the Family Records Center, actually, looking for the Somersets. And he was doing some work on Bunter Somerset, who is now the current Duke of Beaufort. He was doing some work on him. And he, we just overheard me talking 
to my friend Alexander Parnes, who, who was there with me in the Family Record Centre, which was in Farringdon at the time. And he said, oh, he said, you're doing some research. Well, I'm doing research as well. And he did some work for me. And it was through him I realised that my mother was still alive somewhere. And we, we didn't know where to begin looking. And eventually we found Auntie Francesca, my mother's sister, who was in Los Angeles, who'd been in Los Angeles for years running an entertainment company out there. And she told my Swiss family and the Swiss family. This was all back in about 2008, nine. So I was an older man, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, they managed to track down my mother who was in Beale, you know, and uh, they hadn't been in contact with my mother in years. So then they wrote a letter to mother saying, your son's trying to find you. And she said, uh, she wrote a letter back saying, well, I'll come over at Christmas time and whoever wants to meet me can meet me then, which I thought a funny response. Anyway, I didn't know what to expect. I'd uh -huh. seen no photographs of my mother. And we were in this flat in Switzerland and then we were all due to meet around the Christmas period time. So it was, it was just before Christmas and didn't know what to expect. And in walks this little old lady wearing a puffer jacket, you know, and pink leggings, fluorescent bangles, boots, smoking a palatella, wearing a Swiss cap. <laughs> she kind of, she was a bit like Danny DeVito. <laughs> he must have thought she's right up my street, this God woman. Knows, yes, <laughs> and, and she kind of looked me up and down. She said, yeah, she said, February the 6th. Oh, I thought, yeah, that's my birthday. Well, I remembered, you know. And she sat down and then she said, wait, wait, wait. And then she opened her bag and she got out this little piece of paper. And I thought, oh, this is going to be profound, you know. Wow. So she opened up this piece of, she opened up this bag and she opened up her purse and she got this piece of paper out and she handed it to me. And I thought, oh, what's this? You know, what's she going to show me? You know, and she said to me, she said, will you scratch this off? I want to see if I've won 20 francs. <laughs> she thought your magic would rub off on her. <laughs> <laughs> it was a scratch card. <laughs> Most bizarre. Very bizarre. And we've had a, well, we've been in communication ever since, Mother and I. You she's know. still around then? Well, yeah, and then she said, yeah, she's still around, and yes. I go to Switzerland to see her. She always comes over at Christmas time or her birthday on the 21st of October. You know, I always get her over. And, and she said, you have seen your brother and sister? I said, no, I didn't even know I had a brother and sister. Oh, okay. You know. <laughs> have you now? Have you yeah. met them now? Yeah. Well, the irony was, you see, what I didn't realize was that my brother and my sister my half brother and my half brother and half sister because their father was Jack Delal who is who was the they called him Black Jack he was a very well known and notorious gambler gang, gang, yeah yeah very well well known and notorious gambler in the london circuit and all of his children guy delal and alice delal and charlotte delal all the grandkids they're all known in the socialite world but he'd had um, a, a bit of a friendship with my mother you see and i got this story out of heinz shumi the hairdresser because heinz is austrian and Heinz, I, I mean, I only, all these people have been popping up in my life in the last 10 years. You know, it's so funny. And they all live in Chelsea. You know. <laughs> Just around the corner from yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Chelsea. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're, yeah. we're not broadcasting yeah. from today. <laughs> yeah. And Heinz Schumi, the hairdresser, he said to me, he said, I dated your mother back in the 70s. And he's a member of the club. And he said, and he's got this long curly hair and he's a big chap. And he said, and your mother was the most beautiful woman in all of Chelsea. He said, and then when she was pregnant, you see, I thought, oh, my days, what am I going to do? He said, so I spoke to her mother, Lucia, and I said, she is pregnant. And then Lucia, her mother, said, well, now you've made her pregnant, you have to marry her. <laughs> well, he said, well, I thought, no, I'll wait a bit, because, you know, she was a bit of a... He said, and I waited, and he said, but when the children came out and they were black, I knew they weren't mine. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah, well, they're very dark-skinned, my yeah. brother and half-sister, you know. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, and Jack Donnell got sued for paternity for £16,000 back in 1973. So, But, uh, yeah, so they were my half-brother and half-sister, and they were, unbeknown to me, looking for my mother independently of me. But none of us could find her. But it was the most bizarre thing because she was with a man called Freddie who she'd found in this mental institution. And the year before that, she'd found him dead in the bath, my mother. But Freddie was a control freak. And I think if Freddie had been around, we could never have been in touch with her. But they found her independently of me. And I bought her a mobile phone when I first met her. And within three months, they were able to find her and able to communicate with her through the mobile phone that I bought her and then I got a phone call on Bond Street from this guy random guy hello hello this is Alexander uh, you are Maximilian Somerset yes uh, you are the son of Lucia uh, sorry the son of uh, Pia uh, Maria Pia uh, Lucia was the mother mother of Maria uh, you are the son of Maria I said yes I'm the son of Maria Pia oh well I too am the son of Maria Pia uh, I said oh as you must be, you know, because my mother told me about them by this point. But it all happened within a very short space of time. It must have completely freaked you out. Well, yeah. How many are you thinking there's no one going to attend your funeral? Next yeah, you've got more, all of a more sudden, family. Yeah, all of a sudden the whole world and its elbows related to me, you know. <laughs> you know, it's most bizarre. So you're not lonely then? No, no, no. And, and it was, and what was amazing for my brother was, my brother had no photographs of his childhood or no memories of his childhood or anything. And when when he, he contacted, when he found mother, I think mother mentioned Heinz Shumi to him and he went to Heinz's hairdressing shop and Heinz said, have you spoken to your auntie Liliana? And he said, no, I don't know about auntie Liliana. And then no one knows where she lives. She was in Trebevore Gardens prior to that in, 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 in Earl's Court. She used to look after them when they were babies. Um, auntie Liliana, he managed to go to, she used to work in some junk, sh- junk store place on just off the Earl's Court Road somewhere. He went there and said, do you know where, anyone know where auntie Liliana lives? Liliana Godzani. Yeah, she lives in... Turnham Green or Palmer's Green or somewhere. He went up there, found her, knocked on the door, opened the door, and she met him. And the amazing thing was she recognised him and she had a whole load of photographs from their childhood and she'd been keeping them in the hope that one day she'd meet him. Remarkable. So it was most, most unusual. Absolutely remarkable. And then finally I met them and it turned out that my brother and sister, they were living in Stratford and I was in, you know, Fulham. So now they've moved to Battersea. So, I mean, you know, it's just bizarre. It is utterly bizarre. But in not so much detail, you build elements of this into your show, don't you? Yes. Yeah. I, I you know, I do a show called, one of my, one of my stage shows is Signature Tricks, where, where I, I look at my life and my history and how all of these things, one of the things I talk about is one of these experiences in the, in the casino, in uh, Palm Beach Casino. When I was a student at Trinity College of Music, I would go into Palm Beach Casino because they used to do free sandwiches and orange juice. So it's worth being a member of the casino, you know. So I used to go in. But what I didn't realize was I would go in and out of that casino and I didn't know that my half-sister was working on the desk. So I was walking in and out past my half-sister night after night, not even knowing she was my half-sister. So you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful how you treat people because you never know. You might be their cousin yeah. or you might be their brother Absolutely. or their sister. Well, we're all related yeah. ultimately. Yeah. But go back far enough. Yeah, fantastic. You know. Well, I know we're um, we're strapped for time because of the uh, where we are today have given us some... Res- I know. Doesn't time fly when you're having fun? We've got to wrap up shortly. So... Just tell us a little bit about what, what you're doing at the moment. Where, where, you, where you're performing? 
Yeah, I've been doing a lot of a lot of work with sports people. Mm-hmm. I've been teaching a lot of sports people magic. Yeah, which actually. is how I got in touch with which you in the first place. Which is how you got in touch with me in the first place. Through Stuart Hayes. Through Stuart Hayes. One of the things I, I, I've been doing is I've been going to Jersey and coming back and teaching Nigel Mansell magic, helping him out. And, and I helped him. He had a terrible brain injury. Um, on the Le Mans stretch in one of the races and 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 I met him at an event and, and he said to me, look, you know, he came up to me. You can read about this in his book, Staying on Track. He has a whole chapter on it called Saved by Magic. Mm. And he, he met me. I was performing there and he said, look, would you teach me some magic? I want to try and work on my hand-eye coordination skills again. I feel a little bit... I feel a little bit out of my depth. So we began and that really helped him regain his self-confidence again. Now I think he's in Florida and he does magic shows around and about. And he's a member of the magic circle as well. Stuart Hayes is a domestique. I was, um, he, I, I was, he asked me to be part of his relay team and, and I began teaching Stuart magic and Stuart's got into magic. So I've been doing a lot of that kind of thing. And, and on top of that, I've been doing a lot of talks in schools and in colleges, and using magic to make to, to introduce people to think about exploring different ways of thinking about reality. That's why I, I mentioned that at the beginning. One of the one of the talks I do is a talk on the Turin Shroud, which is a, which is we haven't got time to go into now, but it's a fascinating artifact. It's the most studied artifact in all of human history, and I do a talk on that, and I use magic tricks while giving that talk to talk about the fact that we all have paradigms about the way that we see reality, and and actually. Sometimes when we think about certain things, they don't fit into our uh, the square, the four square walls of what our reality looks like. And actually, there are times in our lives when it's worth exploring different models of reality, or what we consider to be real or not. You know, I think that this is how I'm, I'm I'm doing quite a lot of this at the moment mm. as well. So, so did you appreciate that? I mean, you said you'd done some work with uh, with Nigel Mansell, who, who suffered uh, serious injuries in one of his crashes, didn't didn't he? I think. Yes. Did Did you appreciate before your work with him that magic could have this beneficial sort of um, effects on I don't know cognitive behaviour and understanding and improving one's mental psyche shall we say no i i knew that magic was 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 a wonderful tool to help people like like for example when i was a child being bullied i knew it was a wonderful tool to help to do something beyond itself yes you know but i'd never really considered just how amazing it was in terms of just helping people to you know to deal with hand-eye coordination and to deal with mental health issues Mm. and to to deal with self-esteem issues and there's another guy a a wonderful uh, magician um who who does a whole project with with young people richard can't remember his surname now wiseman yes and and another guy works with him actually funnily enough uh richard mcdougall and they do a wonderful thing where they help they help young people with mental health or, or or learning disabilities to do magic and to so this whole area for me cracked open i, I knew nothing about mm. it so it's been something new for me and something i've been very anxious to explore and do more of because for me i think you know a wise man once said uh, it's better to give than to receive yeah true true word before we wrap up where can people find you on social media on your website or whatever how can people get in touch with you maxmagic.co.uk the name is Max Somerset my mother called me Maximilian Liberty Foroboski de Ptolemy Somerset which as I say is a long name but that's when you get when your mother's an Italian countess and half nuts but um, yeah that's why hence PTO on the passport for <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, yeah. we've gone full circle we have yeah. perfect symmetry that's exactly how you like it <laughs> yeah so yeah so, so that's how people can find you yeah okay and 
I, I might be springing this on you a bit. I may have asked you beforehand. I ask all my guests at the end of the interview if they can recommend, because we're, this is a London-based podcast, if you can recommend one or two places in London that you particularly like, it's personal to you, it could be a walk, a museum, a park, a, a restaurant, anything that, that, that you like. It could be the Magic Circle, for example. Yeah. Well, the Magic Circle is a wonderful place, and they do a Meet the Magic Circle on a Tuesday night which is a wonderful. And I recommend going down there and, and, and just going, the museum is amazing. We have, uh, you know, Reginald Scott's ye, ye, ye Oldy Discovery of Witchcraft, which is older than America. You know, we have a copy of that in, in, in the vaults there. And, and we just have so many wonderf wonderful historical things there. It's worth going down just for a tour of the museum. Scott Penrose was the then president He's just recently, but he was, the I, I think, just the most amazing president. He's done so much stuff, worked on so many movies and things. And, you know, if you get the chance to see him, speak to him. And yeah, I mean, I, I'd say definitely the Magic Circle. Yeah, is I, I can vouch for that. I, I have actually been there several years ago. We went on, a, I think, a corporate event was put on there that evening. We had a tour of the museum. I think there was a little, you know, show going on and some close-up magic from one of the magicians. It was, it was really splendid to go, go oh. there. Yeah, and, and there's Houdini's chair yeah. that's in there and Robert Harbin's a zigzag lady, which was famously shown in the on the Palladium in the 60s. So that, and, and of course, if you get the chance, there's this wonderful place in Chelsea called the Chelsea, Chelsea Arts, Arts Club, Club. Um, <laughs> which, which I would recommend. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's, a real, it's a real little hideaway. It's a bit shabby chic, but lots of fun and... Uh, Drinks are really cheap. Yeah, but you do have to be a member to get in, or um, a friend, or, or, or a friend. Yeah, you're a, you're a member. Send me an email. Yeah, yeah. Check, get you in as a get you in as a friend. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, on that note, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the uh, the podcast today. Uh, thank you ever so much for sharing your time with us. It's been a and getting us into the Chelsea Art Club. Mm. It's been been fantastic. And I, I I would ask everybody to go and check you out on your website, on your social, to go and see you, to go and listen to you. Yeah, um, yeah. at Max Somerset. Check me out. Send me a, send me a shout out. You know, it'd be lovely to hear from you. Thanks, Max. Pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Take care. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.